I was trying to be polite, but it turned out to be kind of rude. So, my bad. So, I just got a text from Sam Collier. It's just because I just opened my phone. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Are we live? So, you're like waiting on me to do something important. So, anywho, good morning. Rainy day. Lots of folks on vacations. Some folks may be still sitting there sleeping. Uh, we got sick relatives and just a whole lot going on right now. Um, but we do have some exciting things going on uh, in the life of our church, um, just coming down in the very near future. Um, I'm thinking, for anybody that wants to, um, I'm hoping I have time, we could walk over. Uh, and y'all could see kind of the updated status of the new facility if you wanted to. Um, and uh, y'all could see where we're at. And um, I don't know how to, I'm just waiting on go from the property owner. I think we're really close for him to turn it over to us. The electricity should be done. Um, I'm hoping the air conditioner has been done. I don't know that. Uh, he was supposed to get a plumber in there last week, so. Um, we're really running out of things for them to do. And really close. We ordered carpet, carpet tiles that uh, you guys will learn how to lay. That'll be exciting. I'll teach you as I learn. I've never done it myself either, but we've laid enough floor we can lay that. So uh, we got that ordered. Uh, just some exciting things there. Also got some exciting things, opportunities um, really being given to me concerning our downtown uh, in the middle of some discussions about that, but um, just uh, could kind of expand our uh, influence downtown as a church. So really excited about that. I don't want to share too much till things come to fruition, but um, uh, just help me pray over that and over how to handle opportunities that are given to us. So how's that for being vague? That's the way it goes, right? I said something without saying anything at all. Um, we got back from vacation at 11.08 last night. Tried to beat the GPS and get home by 11.07. Didn't happen. Uh, so we got home, went to bed, and came here uh, after 14 hours in the car yesterday. Uh, so that was the longest trip ever. We made a 10-hour trip last 14 hours thanks to traffic. It wasn't the kids' fault. Kids did great. We didn't give them any water, so they were dehydrated and didn't have to go to the bathroom. Uh, but um, just sat in traffic all day. It was pretty awful. So if you go to the beach, um, I suggest you don't leave on Saturday. So anywho, let me start you out with the story uh, concerning my beach trip. Actually, this year we ended up in a different area of Florida, somewhere we'd never been before. And if you've been to the to the beach, the Gulf Coast, you're, you're probably like me, you're accustomed to seafood restaurants, kind of like on every corner, you know, like Joe's Crab Shack, that type of seafood restaurant, somewhere where you know what you're getting and you can go and it's pretty predictable. You get a, a seat on the beach and um, you can get whatever it is you get when you go to the beach, right? Those, those restaurants, well, the place that we, um, that we went didn't have those. The area that we ended up in didn't have those, right? I'm just used to, like, rolling in off the beach and sitting down in your swimsuit, right? Um, that's what you get to expect 
uh, on those vacations. But they didn't have those. We found ourselves, actually, I, I told Shelly, I said, we paid more for that dinner than we've ever paid for a single meal in our lives. Like, I'm sure we'd let other people pay for us, like you guys. Uh, but this was on our own bill. This was the most expensive dinner we've ever paid for. Uh, at a place, uh, talk about walking in in your bathing suit. I didn't do that, um, but we were severely underdressed. Severely underdressed. Um, I don't go on vacation to dress up. I go on vacation to relax, right? But I've never seen so many guys in blue and white striped golf shirts in one place in my life. Um, like every dude, blue and white striped golf shirt and khaki shorts. It's like that was the attire that we didn't get the memo for. Um, but apparently uh, that's what it was. And apparently we were the only ones that didn't arrive in our sailboat. It just looked like everybody else got off their sailboat. And it looks like we got off of our dinghy. You know, it's just like we rowboated up here or something. I don't know. Um, Instead of cocktail dresses, the Robertsons, we had uh, Shelly had cut off blue jeans and a camo shirt, um, so that was pretty cool. Um, and the boys had on baseball jerseys and, you know, trucker caps. Um, so that's... Then there was Jordan. Jordan was almost the most appropriately dressed, except for the fact that she was covered from her chest to her feet in honey mustard sauce. Uh, so she walked around just completely covered and nastiness. So all that story to say this is we were a mess. We were a complete mess. And when I got studying this week, I was reminded that ministry is a mess. Okay. Or at least I think it should be. I think it should be messy. Uh, we're going to get into that this morning. The image that people often have of the church um, maybe especially those who aren't a part of the church, is that it's a group of people who kind of retreat from the mainstream current of the city, and they kind of pull back to this cleaner, more controlled environment. Right? It's like that group of people that just creates this controlled environment, and, and you just kind of pull out of the mainstream, and we, we have, it, it almost becomes like this social... Um, the word is, right? But this social setting where people can control what they interact with, um, what happens, uh, and it's outside of the kind of mainstream current of the city. That's often the image that people have of the church. But when you look into the Gospels, that's not the image that was painted of Jesus in his ministry. Like that is not at all the kind of ministry that Jesus had. Jesus' ministry was messy because he never drew a line between him and the city. Right? It was like, in fact, the only line that existed with Jesus was between him and those who wanted to retreat from the city and create their own little social network. That was the only line that was really dividing Jesus from anybody was those that just chose to. And they wanted to go as the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they went off and they created their own little social network that was closed off. They had control of it. They knew what they were getting into. They didn't let anybody in that didn't adhere to their, to their um, expectations. But when we see Jesus, he's like so interwoven with the city and the life of the city. Um, actually, those who, who chose to retreat, that car was going the wrong way on a one-way street. I hadn't said that in a number of Sundays, so... 
um, that was happening. Sorry, that's just something you can't not state, right? Uh, when you see it, you have to say it. I don't care what's going on, so I said it. Anywho, back. Jesus, um, he was so uh, interwoven with the city um, that those who chose to retreat actually assumed, and in many situations in the gospel, they made statements, they assumed that Jesus had been swept up in the immorality of the mainstream current. There's many comments in the Gospels that assume that those who chose to pull back have this controlled, cleaner setting. We know what we're getting into. When they looked at Jesus and how he lived in the city, they're like, he's been corrupted by the immorality of the city. He's a drunk. He's a glutton. Those guys are, like, obviously just a part of the city now. They, they've, they've been corrupted. Um, because it's, it's almost like every immoral label seemed to land on Jesus at one point or another. Why? Because his ministry was messy. It was messy, right? Um, so when we discuss having, over the past number of weeks, this catalyst type of faith, type of faith that where when it's dropped in to a surrounding area, it, it begins to change the reactions of those around them without itself being changed. That's what a catalyst is. I showed you my awesome foam, my elephant toothpaste experiment where I dropped the yeast into the other elements and the other elements begin to bubble. Um, but if we knew anything about chemistry, we would know that the yeast itself was unchanged. It was the catalyst in the experiment. When we talk about having a faith that is like that, that when you drop it into the city and it begins to cause chain reactions around you in the city, um, that's what we're talking about. I think it seems that we, it would be good for us in the church to go through a little clarification about what that is. And I think Hebrews chapter 11 that we've been going through over the last few weeks, when we get into verse 31, I think it opens up a very necessary conversation for us. It may be a difficult conversation. Uh, if you're online, hang, hang in there with us. Don't let me lose you. Uh, if you disagree with me early on, that's cool. Just hang with me. Uh, and I think you'll see that we're being faithful to the text. Okay? But it may be a little uncomfortable at first. And that's okay. Um, so Hebrews 11.31 says this. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay. Uh, so that's going to open up our conversation. I want to pray for us before we jump into this, and then we'll make sense of what what everything's going on here. So, Father, we thank you uh, for letting us be here this morning. Uh, thank you for your scriptures that speaks to us, um, how you speak to us, Father, through the text. And I pray that we would hear from you this morning. Let it uh, shift and change our hearts and our minds uh, so that you might uh, cause this catalyst-type faith to dwell within us as we dwell in this city. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, a couple questions come up out of Hebrews. Who is Rahab? What'd she do? And 
why does this challenge our concept of the neat, clean church experience, right? That's really, because I've really set the stage for us to go down that path, and we've got to answer those questions. Um, Buddy, last week, addressed the nation of Israel had left Egypt. They were slaves. God set them free. They left. But when they left, Egypt said, uh-oh, we just let our biggest asset go. Let's chase them. And they wanted to bring them back as slaves, but God parted the waters of the Red Sea, and Egypt, I mean, Israel passes through on dry ground. Egypt chases after them, but they are consumed. Uh, and then on the other side of the Red Sea, as they are approaching the land that God had promised to them, that's where Buddy picked us up last week, was uh, that land was Jericho. Uh, one of the cities was Jericho, and in order to capture the land, God didn't say charge them with uh, swords and trumpets. He said, I want you to march around the city for six days, and on the seventh day when you march around it, then you can make some noise, break some glass, do what you need to do. And God caused the walls of the city to collapse, to fall in. And Buddy talked about the value of repeated obedience, even when you don't see anything happen. Those jokers walked around that city for six days and saw no evidence of anything happening, and it was on the seventh day that God made the walls fall, so we talked about the value of the repeated obedience. But there's a story behind the story when it comes to walking around the city of Jericho and God handing over that city, and that's what Rahab is. She's the story behind the story. I guess if Paul Harvey were with us, he would say, this is the rest of the story. That was, at least that didn't sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger, did it? I think every impersonation I have sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So uh, that was so much better, if I do say so myself. Uh, so we're going to read Joshua 2 and get the story behind the story when it comes to Israel uh, seeing God destroy the city of Jericho uh, so he could move them in. We're going to read the whole chapter 2. Bear with me. I think it's necessary for us to do this appropriately. So here we go. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua secretly sent out spies from the Israelite camp um, at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, Some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I don't don't know where they came from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. She says, I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossing at the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We were all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea. And when you left Egypt, 
And we know what you did to Sion and Og. At, sorry, I had a fly. To Sion and Og and the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River. Those people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Since give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and their family. We offer you our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you do not betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us this land. Uh, then, since Rahab was built, Rahab's house was built into the town wall, uh, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. And then, when they have returned, you can go your way. Before they left, the men told her, We will be bound by oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the streets and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on the people inside the house... We will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied. And she went out on her way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. The spies went into the hill country and stayed there for three days. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said, for the, all the people of the land are terrified of us. Uh, skip ahead, I want to read two more verses in Joshua 6, verses 24 and 25. Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, and iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So Joshua spared Rahab and the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Okay, So I hope you hung with me. hope you hung with me. Sometimes you got to see the whole narrative. From this text, here's question numero uno. If you're familiar with Rahab, avoid everything you think you know, and let's stick with this text. From this text, what do we know about Rahab so far? She make a good bargain. <laughs> make a good bargain. Uh -huh. She's a dealer. <laughs> What do we know about Rahab? Talked herself out of a hairy... She's a prostitute. You know what pops up when you uh, research the original Hebrew and Greek that describes the word prostitute? Prostitute. Harlot. Right? 
Um, whether she did it for money or for attention, she did it, and it is what you think it is. Okay, researching the the, the language just reveals a very clear uh, translation there. What else do we know? Look for the obvious. Okay. Uh, she had um, either one of two things, heard or observed uh, God's word or activity. Yeah. Right. Either she, either that message, uh, either she had some sort of um, special revelation, but she at least had word of mouth from everything God had been doing on the other side of the river. Right? She was attentive to that. She lived in in the city of Jericho, which is the enemy city, right? Uh, the enemy city. Israelite is God's chosen people, and the land that she lives in is the land that he has promised to his people, and she currently dwells there. Yeah. So in every form and fashion, she's a part of the enemy camp, both by physical presence, by cultural uh, lifestyles, by, by, by spiritual beliefs. She is part of the enemy. She's part of their camp. Um, she, how she, she dealed and bargained because of what she heard, but how did she deal and bargain? How, what was her method of escaping destruction? Hmm? She did, but what did she do for her own people? Framed them. She lied. Like when they came and they're like, there's some men who've come to spy. Yeah, they were here, but now they're gone. Like they left the gates. I bet you'd catch them if you go. Used to lying? It's quite possible. Or hiding men in her house. Probably, yeah. She, she probably had a hiding spot that she used regularly. I don't know. The last thing I had on my list is this. After this whole scenario plays out, um, she lives with Israel. She changes camps, lives among the Israelites. She's the only one left. Her and her family lives among them. So up to this point, Hebrews appears to be, and this is kind of the, the, the shifting point and why this becomes a little bit messy for us when we consider uh, our faith in the church up to this point, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, appears to be celebrating a catalyst-type faith of a line hooker that is on the wrong team. Then there's Rahab. Let's talk about her faith. You know, 
the lying, cheating prostitute who is of the enemy. Let's celebrate her faith. That's what's going on right here, okay? That seems messy to me. Uh, I believe the struggle that we have, and I'm making an assumption real quick based upon experience that I've had in my life and in my ministry. I believe the struggle that we have when it comes to celebrating people like Rahab, most of us, at some point or another, equate faith. This is why it's hard to celebrate line hookers. Most of us celebrate faith, or think about faith, in terms of morality, not theology. Okay? Most of us, at some point or another, equate faith to morality, not theology. Okay? What is morality? It's, it's a system of values. It's how you discern between right and wrong, good and bad. You might say, well, she's a prostitute, and she lied. She's bad, right? According to the morality, we, we struggle to celebrate her because she is immoral. Uh, and, and, and if you equate faith to morality, then you, you struggle as to why... Hebrews would be celebrating her. But theology is a system of study knowing the nature of God. Okay? The study of God. It's the study that allows you to know who He is, His nature, His character. Um, it helps you, if, if morality helps you discern between what's right and wrong, good and bad, theology helps you discern between what is true. What is true about who God is? That's theology, okay? And that's different than morality. But a lot of times we tend to equate faith with morality instead of theology. How do I know that to be true? Here's one example. Most Christian testimonies that are celebrated follow this outline, okay? Imagine somebody standing up, telling their story, and everybody's like, wow, that's an amazing story. Here's the pattern that most of them follow. Number one, it starts out by telling, here's all the bad things I used to do. Here's all the bad things. Here's the lifestyle that I was caught up in and all the bad things I used to do. Part number two, here's how I put my faith in Jesus. Part number three, here's how I stopped doing all the bad stuff. That's the general outline of most Christian testimonies. I did a lot of bad stuff. I met Jesus. I don't do a lot of bad stuff anymore. That's not theology. That's morality. Okay? If that's left to itself, and it's communicated that way, that's equating faith to morality. And the more radical the bad stuff the more we celebrate the story, right? It's like, wow. Along this lines, I, I remember a conversation with one of the older ladies at a church I was at before. Um, we were talking about um, sharing our stories, our faith stories. 
And one of those older ladies told, I still remember standing there hearing this for my own ears, and it, it just blew me away. She said this, when I became a Christian, I didn't have anything to repent of. <laughs> your, your eyebrows going up was the same response that I had, except my eyebrows almost came off my face when she said that. When I became a Christian, I didn't have anything to repent of. She's like, I was too young. I didn't have anything to repent of. Let me tell you what she meant. She had heard so many faith stories that equate to morality to the extent that she no longer or never did understand her need for Jesus. So many stories celebrating moral victories that she didn't see her own need for a Savior. Not only did she fail to see her need for Jesus, but perspective, um, perspectives like hers, and this is where it gets messy, when you have a lot of people that have that same perspective like hers, those perspectives fail to see why we would celebrate an immoral prostitute. When I became a Christian, I didn't have anything to repent of. So then I'm going to read Hebrews and say, you know what, that lying prostitute, let's talk about her faith. God, that was incredible. Such an incredible faith that Rahab had. Such a catalyst in the story of God. What? Like, didn't they just describe her as a lying prostitute? So the book, in, the book of James uh, talks about the concept of faith. And James states this. He says, faith without works is dead. It's useless. Faith without works is dead. Useless. Has no life. It's not even real. He's like, some people say, I got faith. Some people say, I got works. He's like, nah, it's not really worth talking. You got to have both. They go hand in hand. Okay? So let's take what James said, and let's take Rahab, what we know to be true about her right now. Suppose you knew a lying prostitute living in the bad part of town where everyone she hangs out with will be destroyed because of their rebellious ways, right? You know that lying prostitute who lives on the wrong side of the tracks and everybody she hangs out with is about to go down because of their rebellious ways. What do you say that she needs to work out? Because faith without works. Is dead. What is that lying prostitute on the wrong side of town with the wrong group of friends who's walking into her own destruction? What does she need to work out? <laughs> and you're not wrong, right? We're just going through a common sense conversation here. All right? She may need to get out of prostitution. That may be a good step. 
She may need to get a real job. She may need to learn to quit lying. She may need a new group of friends because you become who you hang out with, right? Um, so we got this list. You need to quit wheeling and dealing to get your own way. You obviously need to, to get out of prostitution. You're actually good for caring for your family, but you need to do it in a more moral way <laughs> instead of lying to all your own people. Um, you definitely need a new city to live in because being an enemy of God is, is it's not good. But James also talks about Rahab. And this is where it gets messy for me. James goes on to celebrate Rahab as well. But not really for the works that most people would expect. So look with me in James chapter 2 verse 25 Rahab the prostitute she's another example she's known or she was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely to a different road just as the body is dead without breath so also faith is dead without good works James is commending her for lying It doesn't say anything about celebrating the fact that she got out of prostitution. And he says, she's an example of a catalyst type of faith. (laughs) This is really jacking up my theology. Really messing with my concept of church, too. Rahab's faith is celebrated because of her decisions that were driven by theology, not morality. Let me say that again, because that's... Rahab's faith is celebrated as her decisions are driven by theology and not morality. She said in Joshua chapter 2, this was her turning point in her story, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, for the Lord... Your God is the supreme God of the heavens and the earth below. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm making this decision because I know your God is the true God. He's the real God over heaven and earth and he is going to have victory. I'm on his side now. I want to be on his side. I know that to be true. Not once does any biblical author ever mention how she was delivered from immorality. She was delivered from idolatry. Okay? Never does the Bible say, isn't it amazing? Like she got married and had kids and had a real relationship. And that was the most miraculous thing that God did in her life. No. Doesn't say that at all. It celebrates the fact that she turned from idolatry and doesn't ever really credit the immorality. Okay? And in this statement, this was her declaring her faith. Like the Lord your God, He's the supreme God over heaven and earth, He's true. So this is the same way that Jesus' ministry was messy. This is how it gets messy. When 
Jesus' faith, the faith that Jesus taught, focuses on theology instead of focusing on morality. Okay? I know the thought in every one of your heads right now. Yeah, you can be focused on theology, but you still can't do that. I know where your head's going. I get that. I get that. But before you go there, let's, let's get here. Because what I'm saying is biblical. It's true to Jesus. Okay? Every encounter he had, and you're going to talk about the woman who was caught in adultery and Jesus said, go and sin no more. I get that. But what I'm saying here is true first. His ministry, his teaching, his life, and those that came after him focused first primarily on theology. Where somewhere along the ways, our greatest celebrations of faith became about morality. And there began to be a shift. And then we quote James as evidence. Faith without works is dead. You need to get your morals right. But the whole passage where James is talking about works, he's talking about that line hooker that tricked all their people and never says anything about her getting out of prostitution. He credits her lying as the biggest act of faith. Like it was a catalyst in the life of her family because from that day on, she was part of Israel. She became a part of the story, not by getting out of prostitution and immorality, but by getting on the right team by believing the right thing. She was convinced that this was the true God and she wanted to be a part of it. Okay? So this is how Jesus' ministry was. This is how his faith was. Theology, not morality. Therefore, therefore, here's what it changes when it comes to Jesus. Therefore, he can go in and out of the mainstream current without being corrupted by the immorality. Kind of like a catalyst. Jesus, because he was lasered in on the character and, and knowing the truth about who God is, that was the focus of his ministry. He's come to reveal the Father. Because he was focused on that, he could go in the current of immorality, go in, go out, go in, go out, just so interwoven in the city without being corrupted by the immorality. Okay? It just leaves me with a couple questions. Number one, I wonder if we can have a faith like that. If we can have a faith like that. That we are focused on the truth about the nature of God. And then our lives can be interwoven in this city. And we can, like Jesus, you think about his life and you, you, you picture the things that he was doing. He was, he, he was sharing meals with the business owners of his city. And not all of them were like honest business owners. <laughs> like they were cheats and thieves and like everybody else hated them. But they were the ones making the cash. And Jesus would like sit down and eat dinners with them, go into their house. And then he'd come out of their house. And you know what? Jesus wasn't changed because he knew the truth. 
You know who has changed when he left their house? It was the business owner. He would sit with those women who were the most scandalous in all of the town. And when that interaction was over, Jesus didn't become a scandal. Why? Because he knew the Father. But that woman was changed. And the rest of her life was as well. That's what we're talking about. Can we have a faith that is driven by theology instead of morality? Just like Jesus did. Just like we're celebrating with Rahab. Okay. Uh, can we have a ministry like this? That's the two options. You create this subculture where you can keep everything neat and clean and we can kind of protect what comes in and what comes out. Or, uh, and, and that's a kind of adhere to the right morals so you can be a part of the group sort of thing. Or we can be focused on the revelation about who the Father is and the theology that we know to be true, what Jesus has revealed to be true about God the Father and about himself. And we can be so in love with that that we're able to go in and out without being affected, without being corrupted. You just, whatever comes in contact, it doesn't matter. Like, but that's the ministry we have. We sit at tables with the scandalous business owners and, and we're able to interact with any. Can we have a ministry like that? But lastly, I don't know, can we think of ourselves like this? And maybe this is a big deal too. Can we think of ourselves like this? I'm going to be honest with you. I think this is something that I've been going through lately. And I've. I almost feel like I'm learning the gospel again for the first time. It's really weird. Really weird. Um, and I think of let, let me give you an insight into this. This is what I mean. I think I've always celebrated the work of God in my life because of the milestones and the markers of the, the things that I quit doing or I started doing. Right? It's like, well, I don't do that anymore, so... I'm growing in my faith because I don't, or because I do this thing. And, and if I'm honest with you, when I get further down the road and maybe some of those things come full circle, and like I'm wrestling with them again, like something I hadn't struggled with in 10 years becomes a struggle again, then you got to go somewhere in your head. And let me say this. Whatever work God has done in the past of your life and things you do or don't do and in the growth and, and things like that, it's good. But just because you have victory over it yesterday doesn't mean it's not going to be a struggle tomorrow. So it's not like you've grown past these things. you got to decide, can you think about yourself, not in terms of winning because of your morality, but growing because of your theology? Because you're going to need a deeper understanding of the Father when that thing comes back to kick your... Right? Your willpower is not going to be sufficient to say, I'm more moral than that. Or what about when your daughter comes home and she's 16 and she's pregnant? 
Is her immorality going to trump the way you see her, the way you interact with her, the way you deal with her? Or are you going to continue to drive her to the Father? Because you're either going to drive her away or you're going to drive her to the Father. And if you're equating faith to morality, you're going to drive her away. If you're equating faith to theology, you're going to drive her to grace. And she'll grow through it. But how do you think about yourself through this content? When that struggle comes back that you thought you had victory because you grew past that thing, praise Jesus, he did a work in my life. I don't struggle anymore. But what about when you do? Because you will. And if you're moral-based, it's going to crush your heart. If you're theology-based, it's going to set you free. But if you can't think about yourself like that, you're not going to ever lead anybody else and go into the city like that. Actually, what you're going to do is you're going to hide from the city because they might corrupt you. You're going to hide from the city because those things that I used to struggle with, some of those people do those things. And if I get close enough, it's going to wear off on me and it's going to, it's going to corrupt me. So I've got to stay away from those people, those people. Those immoral people. Oh, you mean like Rahab <laughs> that was like celebrated in James and Hebrews as like this catalyst type faith that changed this. It's like, yeah, like her. Like her. Okay. Making the shift to a theology focused faith opens a lot of doors that would otherwise be off limits for you as an individual and us as a church. Like if we can get this theology based faith. Instead of morality-based faith, it's going to open a lot of doors. A lot of doors that would otherwise be, we can't go there, we can't do that. It may also have a larger impact than expected on future generations. Like when we look at that city and we think about past generations, I want us to think about the future generations and say, man, if we got that right, that could have a huge impact on future generations. And what do I mean? I mean it with... Look, listen, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, it says it's going through the genealogy of Jesus. That's how Matthew opens up his letter, uh, his gospel. He says, um, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, who was a descendant of David. You may think genealogies are boring, but I think this is one of the most incredible things that we can observe as we think about Ruth. Did she get out of prostitution? It's probably likely, because now she's got children. Now she's got a family. And this lying prostitute who was on the wrong team from day one became a part of the lineage of the Savior of the world. She was not disqualified for her immorality. She was drawn into the family and became actually an intricate part of the family that brought forth Jesus to this world. She was the father of Boaz Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. So what does that make her to King David? Like great-grandmother or something like that. The greatest king in Israel's history and then leading to the greatest king 
King Jesus. Her faith had an impact on so many generations that that actually reaches to me and you. I just don't want us to underestimate the impact. And it started with her saying, you're God. He's God. Victory comes through him. I want to be on your team. And her faith was celebrated before her life was ever cleaned up. We don't even know what happened with her life. We assume some steps happened, but it was all theology driven. It's all based upon the truth and the nature and the character of God. And to those of you that are wrestling in your mind with, well, what if we don't lead people? The Holy Spirit leads people. We teach. We help. But all the things that we feel like we need to clean up in ourselves or in other people's selves, it's like the Spirit of God's going The more that we draw into the person of God, the more we're going to reflect the person of God. He's going to work it all out. If we can focus on the nature and the person of Jesus, then He's going to work out the morality details. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And that sets us free to focus on Jesus. So, uh, the one who was born, this Jesus, he was born just so he could be crucified to cover our guilt and then so that he could be resurrected to give us new life. That person, his lineage, not only his ministry, but his lineage was messy. It was messy. Man, if we had time to go through the other names in there, woo, you'd, you'd blush. You'd blush. You'd be like, God, don't, no, he ain't even going to touch people like that. No. He's going to use people like that as a catalyst. As a catalyst. If his gospel was focused on morality, <laughs> we'd all be out. We'd all be out. But because it's focused on theology, it's going to get messy, but I think it's supposed to get messy. Okay? It's going to get messy, but I think that's all right. I think it's the way Jesus did it, and he didn't tell us to do it any other way. But it may need to get messy in your own heart first. You may need to deal with the reality that you're more of a slave to morality than you think you are. Like you think you've been winning because you've been doing something or not doing something. And when that struggle comes up to bite you in the butt tomorrow, all of a sudden you're going to think you're losing. You're not going to know what to do. But if you're focused on the person and the nature of God, and of Jesus, you just got to do the same thing. It's that repeated obedience that Buddy was talking about. What do you do on a good day? Just obedient. What do you do on a bad day? Eh, just keep being obedient. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep walking behind him, walking with him. No matter what you feel like, what's true is true. Right? That's a theology faith. And we're going to celebrate some scandalous people when that happens. 
I want to pray for us. And we'll uh, let Tyler and these guys lead us in time of worship. Father, we thank you for Rahab. Man, she got grafted into the family. uh, Began to live the rest of her days with your people. Man, all because she, she looked up and recognized that you are the truth. And... Man, everything that we thought was wrong with her life, all the stuff that we could pick out, that simple confession of faith, Father, gave you power to work all that out. And you didn't just work it out to where she enjoyed the rest of her days. You worked it out to where she (laughs) became one of the key players in the family tree of your Savior. (laughs) You didn't consider her a second-class citizen of the family. Like, you brought her to the forefront. And every time we celebrate her, we don't celebrate her deliverance from morality. We celebrate her deliverance from idolatry. I don't know. That's a struggle for us, Father. It is. I pray that you help us settle into that, though. Help that just kind of wash over our hearts. Help us be honest with ourselves that we're probably more dependent upon our success and morals than we are dependent upon what we know to be true about you sometimes. And just don't give up on us, Father. Don't give up on us. And concerning our future as a church, um, we know if if we uh, press into this that it will get messy from time to time. I pray that we're okay with that. I pray that we're okay with that, Father. I know you are, so let us just be faithful and go with you. Uh, as we worship you, I pray that you help uh, help us meet with you, Father, as you meet with us in Jesus' name.